Uh, so last week, we started a series that uh, we're calling Getting Along. And uh, I think it's important that we have a series like that as we're in our world currently because it's becoming increasingly more difficult for people to live together. If you watch the news, if you read the news, you'll see that it's becoming increasingly more difficult. Uh, if someone looks different than me or speaks a different language than me, it seems now that in our world there's an assumed mistrust just because we look different or sound different. If someone thinks differently than me, they must be against me. That's kind of how our world uh, sees things today. Our world is changing. In many ways, our world has already changed. Uh, words like anger and animosity and fear, uh, those things have become political strategies and they're used to inflame and to excite and to encourage a particular base of people in whichever way you might be leaning because you want to have them. So there's this extreme that has been created in our world. We live in this polarized world, whether it's conservative or liberal, whether it's Republican or Democrat, traditional or progressive, if it's gay or straight, black or white, climate change, gun rights, opioid epidemic, pick any social issue and there seems to be two opposing and very distant sides in every topic. And it seems as if we're required to pick a side if we're going to engage in conversation. The world has been divided into these camps. The world's been divided into these tribes. And we currently live in a world where we can follow, right, social media people? Where we can follow people who think the same way as me, and I can like things, or I can like people or statements on my social media feeds like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and when I do that, what you may or may not know, I'm sure you've all heard uh, that they do this, but that all of those uh, uh, platforms use something called algorithms, and those algorithms are meant to provide you with similar thoughts and similar people in your feeds. And so while social media may tell you that this provides you with greater engagement in the world, I would suggest that in reality, it is narrowing our focus in the world. That there's an astonishing amount of your life and mine is run by algorithms. And that's something that has changed rapidly in our culture over the last few years and maybe even as much as a decade. So platforms, not just social media platforms, but Netflix and Amazon and Spotify all do something similar. You may have noticed that when you tune into Netflix, it will say, because you watched this, you probably will like this. That's an algorithm that is looking at the things that you're viewing and is determining and suggesting here are some other things that you may like to view. And that's been, and it's popular and it's creative and it's a great way for us to find out about different shows that you never may have known about. But these algorithms are also threatening our ability to think freely and creatively. So when your Netflix and your Spotify and your social channels and even your Amazon, did you know that everyone's Amazon looks different? because of the things that you purchase. So the things that Amazon suggests that you may like to buy 
I would probably not want to buy. So uh, this last couple of weeks, we've been getting a, our shower remodeled, and we had a shower put in and ceramic tile. And so this week, uh, last week, I was purchasing shower rods and a shower caddy that hangs over the shower head thing, right? So I, what did I do? I went on, Googled first, big mistake, Googled best shower rods, because I want the best. Best shower rods, 2019. Believe it or not, there was a list. Best shower caddies, 2019. Guess what happened this morning when I turned on Google? Google assumes that I love bathroom products. That's an algorithm. So as our choices and are narrowed, we begin to click on more, uh, we begin to realize that our decision-making capabilities are, are deteriorating because we are seeing more of the things that we already like, that we already believe, that we already accept. And so these algorithms, in an attempt to help us shop more efficiently, to watch shows that might be better to watch, to, to find people that we went to college with, while all those things happen, it also is pushing us in a direction. It's pushing us to a side. It's pushing us to a camp. It's pushing us toward a tribe. Now, these Algorithms also do something else. They do something called confirmation bias. And I am so, so uh, um, uh, drawn into this. So after I buy something, like I buy a shower curtain rod, after I buy it, I am terrible at having buyer's remorse. Terrible, absolutely terrible. So after I buy the shower curtain rod, see what I did at first in Amazon, I found the best one that I wanted. I went to Amazon and I saw how much it costs and I can afford to buy that one and it was going to be good and I ordered it. Before I ordered it, I checked the first three reviews and they were all five-star reviews and then I ordered it. Well, then after I ordered it, I noticed, I've already ordered it, I noticed that there were about 500 reviews for this shower curtain rod. And some were one star. Now, someone who has terrible buyer's remorse, immediately I start looking at the one-star reviews. But here's what confirmation bias says. Because I've already purchased it now, and it's on its way. I assume all the one-star reviews were people that don't know how to hang up a shower curtain rod. Because what do you mean it falls down? It makes no sense that it falls down because 498 people like the shower curtain rod. The two one-star people must be wrong. So I just joined the five-star camp without even realizing it. And so algorithms do these things to us. And social media draws us into moving towards a camp without even realizing it. And this is where much of our current tribalism and extremism is coming from, I would suggest, from the social media, from algorithms, from the things that we're purchasing, the way that we interact online and the platforms that we use. So as the middle is disappearing from politics and people seem to be increasingly becoming left or right or conservative or progressive or extreme, there's something that's fueling this, and I would suggest that it's this as soon as we go to a story, whether it's alt-right or socialism or pick another extreme, five more appear after that. 
And the next thing you know, we begin to think everyone is thinking just like me. So there's some ways to combat that. This is really depressing, isn't it? Right now you're going, this is the worst message ever. There are some ways, it's going to get better, I promise. There are some ways to combat that. As we are attempting to be observers of our culture, there are simple ways that we could push back against that. The first is to follow people. I was in a conversation in the office this week with some staff members. I was prepping this message, and I had just done all of this uh, uh, work looking at algorithms and those kinds of things. I actually read an article by Carrie Newhoff, who's a, a pastor up in Canada, and he actually put me on this, and I saved the article just because I knew it was going to be connected to this message. And so I'm writing all this stuff down, reading this article, ended up you know, going, from, jumping from website to website, getting more information and connecting all this stuff and went to my Netflix account so that I could make sure I quoted exactly what it says, that it's because you watch this, you'll probably like that. I'm doing all that. And then I hear other staff members in the office and they're talking about the same thing. And I was a little freaked out. I'm like, are they listening to me? Are they in my brain? How is that possible? So I go, and, I, and it was Steve and Ashley, Steve Hoadley and Ashley, Ashley Black. And I said, what are you guys talking about? And they said, oh, we were just talking about how, you know, if you're not careful when you're on your social media feeds, you can find, you can find that you're just reading and listening to the people who think the same way that you think. And I said, that's the message. That's what I'm going to talk about on Sunday. That's so weird. How that happened? And I said, so what do you do to make that not happen? And these are all things that Ashley and Steve and I began talking about. And it was like, one of those things is that Ashley says, I love this. She says, I follow people who I know I disagree with. I'm like, that's, that's a great idea. I find those people annoying. <laughs> why? Because they disagree with me. One-star people who have a one-star review, and I gave it a five-star, why would I want to hang out with one-star people, right? You see what I'm saying? Why would you want to do that? They're different. They think differently. But ask me, I was like, no, let's follow people who think differently. Watch programming that you might disagree with. So know what that says to me? I have to go see Downton Abbey which just made my wife extremely happy because she would want me to go see Down Abbey with her. And so now I have to go see Down Abbey because that's opposite of me <laughs> in every possible way. Uh, read opposing views, right? Read opposing views. Here's what's interesting. You start doing that, it's going to really freak out Google because you're going to bring some confusion to the algorithms. So here, so all of that is the intro. Uh, because as you know, we're in this series that we're calling Getting Along, and there's these five principles that we believe are important as we are going to seek to be in community, especially in community when there is disagreement within a community. And uh, is it provided in your bulletin again this week? No, it's not in your bulletin, but I know I saw copies out in the lobby. If you didn't get a copy last week and you want to get a copy of that, you can find it out in the lobby. And last week we talked about unity and the importance of unity. And today we're going to move a little bit further into this. And the second one that we're going to discuss, it's up on the screen. At Hope, oh no, it's not up on the screen. Yeah, it is. At Hope, we want to pay attention to the culture around us, but we don't want to follow it. And it's longer than that, but I want to just hold on to that thought right there, that we want to pay attention to the culture around us, but we don't want to follow it. Paying attention to culture is a good thing. 
One of the errors that many churches and churches through history have done this, and even churches today, one of the errors that a church can make is an attempt to maintain a hold on what is believed is important to the church. They've turned inward and they've closed their doors to the culture. And so the church moves inside its building in a sense, and it leaves the world outside to fend for itself. And the church abdicates any leadership then when it does that, when the church chooses to not be engaged with the culture. And in so doing, it's become irrelevant to the world. Now, hope from its beginning has maintained a belief that it's important to pay attention to culture. Uh, as easy an example as possible, uh, this week uh, we were having our staff gathered uh, for our September Christmas meeting. So we have several meetings throughout the year in preparation for Christmas season, and we have one in July, and we have one in September. It is not fun to talk about Christmas in July and September. For some people it may be, it's not for me. So in July when we met, we talked about and planned out some things concerning Christmas because in a larger organization we have to plan those things in advance. So we are planning, for instance, our Christmas Eve services. And so we had to plan those things back in July. So we planned that in July. Well, come the third week in August, someone came up to me on staff and said, Rick, did you know that the Eagles are playing Dallas at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on December 22nd. And it's a home game. And I said, no, I did not know that. And then I began pounding my head on the desk. Because December 20, in July, on December 22nd, we decided that was going to be our Christmas Eve service. 5.30. Now, a church that ignores culture would first not know that, and second would say, well, we're going to make people choose. A church that follows culture says, no way can we fight against the Eagles when the Eagles are playing Dallas at home at 4 o'clock when a playoff game or schedule, you know, th th that's an important game. Does everyone agree? I would disagree about today against the Lions. You know, it's eh. No? They're all important? All right. So at our September meeting, Jeff and I were both banging our heads on the desk saying, how did we plan a Christmas Eve service on December 22nd at 530 when there's an Eagles game against Dallas? And we said, we will have to look at that so hold on for the date you guys we're just gonna have to wait we'll have a christmas service it won't be december 22nd at 5 30 during the eagle dallas game so we pay attention to a cult we pay attention to the culture because uh we don't want to follow it are because we don't want to follow, but we do want to observe it, right? Second thing is, second part of that sentence then is coming up on the screen. In fact, we want to lead it. We want to speak prophetically, applying God's truth in all its fullness to a broad range of cultural questions. So we want to lead. That's the goal of the church to lead. If we want to speak into a culture and attract people who don't go to church, then we need to lead, we need to do things that churches wouldn't typically do. So we need to do things like this. Ask questions like, 
How much of the church as we know it are we willing to let go in order to follow Jesus? So Hope does this and has been doing this from the beginning. Uh, organs and robes were the, ch- were the church format of the day in another era, correct? Remember that? Guess what? I am fortunate enough to say that in my whole career, I've never worn a robe as a pastor. I'm proud of that. <laughs> and when Hope began 20, almost 29 years ago, was an organ part of the plan, Randy? No, it was not. But Jeff did wear a robe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because he was moving, we're moving towards that, right? Because robes were still kind of cool for church, or they were part of church at the time, right? Yeah, okay. So, so, um, so how much of the church, though, as we know it, are we willing to let go of in order to follow Jesus? You folks are a part of answering that question as well, right? Because whoever would have thought about a portable church in another town as a way to talk about Jesus to another town? It's about asking questions like, what if there were multiple places where the church could gather, right? That's a different way of looking at church. What if the church went to where the people are gathered instead of finding a way to get the people to come to where the church is gathered? What if the church was seen as a place for people to practice faith, right? It's about practicing faith. It's about growing and living together and where children are taught to be world changers. What if there were multiple ways to belong? What if church was about friends gathering around a table for a meal and having an opportunity to talk about faith? And what if it counted as church? How can the church move past current perceptions of the church? Like that it's judgmental, or that it's a racket, or it's a business where it's perceived as wrong or that it's behind the times or that it's boring or irrelevant or not really helping people. So yesterday was the fall festival, and while we were at the fall festival, I, was, I spent my time at the dog watering station. We had a, we had a multi-level dog watering station. It had, we had multi-level dogs came through and it was kind of a cool thing it was a great conversation piece people came by and even if they didn't have dogs or didn't have their dog with them they said oh that's really interesting what a great great idea and I you know talked about how Doug Wilson who uh, works tech in the back sometimes I talked about how a friend of ours Doug who goes to our church made it and because somebody wanted to buy one uh, yeah, it's just a neat little uh, conversation piece, and I was able to talk with people. So I talked to one gentleman who had his dog there. He was there early in the morning, and, and he had his dog there, and his dog went, some of the dogs would sniff just a little bit, but this guy went, like, all the way up to his ears into the bowl and was, like, slurping up the water. It was a big shepherd doodle something. And, um, and so we got chatting about the dog, and, and he didn't ask me any questions about the church. He just was chatting about the dog. And then he went by, and hours later, I'm like, that's the same dog. I know it is. And sure enough, it was the same dog, the same guy. But now his uh, wife is with him, and we uh, got talking again about the watering dish. He wanted to show her the watering dish and all those kinds of things. And, and then she says, we're looking for a church. 
And I said, oh, really? Oh, yeah. And we got in this conversation. And I said, you didn't tell me you're looking for a church. Because <laughs> I'm pretty forward that way. And he, he laughed and said, because I'm not. <laughs> and I said, oh, I said, so you're looking for a church. And she said, no, we're looking for a church. It was really a fun conversation. It was like, wow, we're going all over the place here, all because the dog was drinking out of the water dish. But I said, well, why are you not looking for a church? He goes, ah, a racket and I said yeah I could I could see that you could see that I said probably some churches are and then they started sharing their church experience well we're from and he named the church we're from such and such a church and it's too big and it's you know it's all about business and there's all this and there's all that and I said oh you'll love us we're not big <laughs> I said we're like we're like 50 60 people at best I said you'd love it I said you'll get to know everybody in the very first day and he's like oh really yeah well why do you do that Continued conversation, changing the perception of what church is like. Because everyone already has an idea. Either it's irrelevant, it's boring, it's a racket. If we want to lead culture, then these are some of the questions we need to begin to ask. If we want to speak into culture and if we want to attract people who would go to church, then we need to do things that churches wouldn't typically do. I was at a conference in August uh, for two days, a church leadership conference. It was in Harrisburg. Harrisburg in August, beautiful. I'm just kidding. But I was there at this conference, and the speaker opened her session by saying this. She said, I believe this is the best time to be the church in 500 years. I thought, wow, that's a pretty bold statement. Best time to be in the church in 500 years. And she named all the things that are wrong with the church. And she said, but this is the best time to be in the church, even though churches are failing even though people are not going to the church she said it's the best time and then she began to talk about innovation and she said the church are the innovators of history and she said if we can get back to being the innovators of history we can change the world again so she shared this story about a gentleman named Gregory Dees. He's the, a professor at Duke University, and he was having an interview with another person, and during the interview, uh, he was asked a question about his position. He's the uh, director or the, the, the chairman of the department at Duke University called Social Entrepreneurship. And he said this, it's up on the screen. He said, I am curious why the church lost interest in entrepreneurial approaches to social needs and problems. For most of American history, faith-based communities led the way in innovative approaches to sectors such as education, health, housing, food, just to name a few. This was particularly true, he says, when you think about approaches that achieve scale and scope. So, for instance, he was saying faith-based hospitals and hospices, right? They... They were founded and began by the church. Colleges and universities were founded by Christians. Organizations such as the Salvation Army, Habitat for Humanity, and World Vision. Then he says this. Yet it seems that about 40 to 50 years ago, faith-based communities lost interest in what we now call social entrepreneurship, which is the field I am now associated with. It emerged in business schools in part because of the decline of interest by the church. 
And so I wonder what happened to the church. If we want to speak into a culture and attract people who would go to church then, or who will not go to church, we need to do things that churches wouldn't typically do. In today's world, imitation is far more common than innovation. The church used to be a place where the innovators, innovators live, where innovations took place. You know, the church was one of the first places where children were educated. It was Sunday school. It wasn't just a place to entertain children while people were in worship. It was a place where children who were working in the fields and working in the factories all day were given opportunity to be educated. Sunday school. Not that our program is about entertaining kids. I don't believe that because I'm going to get to that too. The church is about social change. The church, excuse me, the church was about social change. Homelessness, poverty, women's rights, slave trade, the civil rights movement, apartheid, all were influenced by the church and Christian leaders. The church was involved in discovering the process, this is a great one, of creating beer and champagne. There you go, there's some innovation for you. The church was about innovation. And in our changing world, the ability to think for yourself will emerge as a superpower only because it's becoming increasingly rare for people to think for themselves. So if we want to speak into a culture and if we want to attract people who would not go to church, then we need to do things churches wouldn't typically do. So that's all my intro. So I have zero minutes to share the scripture. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it says this. Paul is speaking and he says, When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. And when I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so that I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the laws of God. I obey the laws of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yet I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessing. So Paul says in those short words, I lived like a Jew. I also lived apart from the Jewish law, and I also shared with those who were weak. It seems as if Paul's all over the place, almost hypocritical. He's there's two opposing views. Follow the Old Testament law. Don't follow the Old Testament law. And Paul's it's the polarizing thoughts. And Paul says, I was both. Paul's not choosing a side because he had another goal. He kept the Old Testament law so that he could be an influence to the Jews when he was in or near their Jewish communities. But he didn't make the Old Testament law his primary way to live so that he could be an influence in non-Jewish communities as well. And when he was with people who struggled, he struggled along with them. 
he sought a common ground with everyone. He said, doing everything I can to save some. And Paul's goal, I do everything to spread the good news. And how? Paul tells us, I want to obey the law of Christ. So that begs the question, what is the law of Christ? In John chapter 15, Jesus says this. It's up on the screen. This is my commandment. All right, here you go. This is the law. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. Last week, Pastor Jeff, during the message, was quoting from Ephesians, and he said, our attitude is humility and our way is gentleness. That we have an attitude of humility and we have a way of gentleness. I would say, to add to that, our role is servant and our way is friendship. Our role is servant and our way is friendship. During this turbulent time in history, when there are these polarizing views around us, the best place for the church, the role of servant and the way of friendship, to do everything possible to spread the good news. Now, in those verses there, it says, uh, love each other in the same way as I love you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life, to lay down one's life. And, and often, I remember being in youth group as a kid and hearing that and thinking, wow, you, like Jesus is like not messing around. Like You got to like give your life to somebody. Like I got to like take a bullet for somebody. And I'm like, I got a few people I'd take a bullet for not all of you. I'm not sure, right? Like, take a bullet for somebody. That's like a really big deal. But then I also thought, as I was a young young uh, follower of Jesus, thinking, oh, man, you know what? Um, that's like really bold. Someone take a bullet. Like, they're willing to give their life for somebody. Like, that's, that's significant, right? That's like, if they do that, that's not only heroic, but yeah, like, and as a teenager, I was like, that's a quick ticket to heaven. Like, not just because you took a bullet, but it's also a, like you get a free pass, right? That was kind of my thinking back in the day, right? But then I discovered that that thought there to lay down one's life isn't that. I would suggest it's more difficult than that. The word there uh, literally means horizontal. And practically, it means to bow down continually, bow down continually. So to lay down one's life then is to always continually put the other person ahead of you. Continually. See, having to give your life to some, for someone else, that's a one decision, right? It's a big decision, but it's one decision, right? To, but to do that for every circumstance, to bow down continually, to role of a servant in the way of friendship. 
I would suggest, based on my conversations that I had at the fall festival yesterday and other times, friendship is very attractive. And a spiritual friendship even more so. To talk around a water bowl about why you don't go to church. That's significant, right? So at Hope, we want to pay attention to the culture around us, but we don't want to follow it. In fact, we want to lead it. We want to speak prophetically, applying God's truth and all of its fullness to a broad range of cultural questions. Having the role of a servant and the way of friendship and having an attitude of humility and a way of gentleness to do everything to spread the good news of Jesus. So uh, I think I have a minute. I'm just going to share this with you. Uh, we have donuts. Did I mention that? But uh, so uh, the other day I was, uh, um, I forget how this happened. Oh, oh, I know. I was, uh, I was at, ha I, I mentor a student at Harrington Middle School. And uh, because I mentor a student at Harrington Middle School, uh, I've gotten to know the secretary at the guidance office at Harrington Middle School. And uh, she somehow got it, heard that there was, a, there's a development in Mount Laurel, uh, the Ethel Lawrence uh, development. You've probably seen it on the, right down the road, about a mile from here, less than a mile down the road. And she uh, had sent me an email saying that the director there was looking for some uh, back-to-school supplies. Well, it turned out that our children were doing summer service, and the Sunday prior, they had just done a back-to-school drive, and they had collected backpacks and pencils and rulers and all those kinds of things for, uh, for, to, to give away. And Chris, when she was doing that, had thought it was a great idea, but she didn't know where she was going to send the supplies to. So I got an email from, uh, from this uh, guidance uh, secretary, and she had said, uh, don't know if you can help, but if you can, here's some contact information for uh, Michael Morris, who's the director of education at the uh, Fair Share Housing Development at Ethel Lawrence. And I had no idea what this, I'm like, what is this? And so I read it, and it just says, we're doing a back-to-school drive. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I forwarded it to Chris and just said, hey, see if we can do something with this very executive of me, right? <laughs> and Chris emailed me back and said, hey, we just did a drive. Wow, what a coincidence. God's involved in this. this is cool. Uh, we can do it. And I said, all right, I'll follow up. So I email uh, Michael Morris, and I said, hey, we have some stuff. Can I stop by and see you? And he said, yeah, it'd be great. So Chris loaded up the back of my Camry with the whole trunk. I had to take my golf clubs out. That's how much stuff there was, all right? And just stuffed it with backpacks, and each backpack was filled with crayons and, or pencils, whatever, all kind of back-to-school stuff. And I drove over. Well, it turns out that um, you may or may not know about, like I said, just a mile down the road is, is this uh, little uh, community, and it is part of the Mount Laurel Doctrine of 1975. They are the original... Uh, uh, housing development about uh, that, uh, that we provide families the uh, choice to live in high opportunity communities with access to decent jobs, good schools, and a safe environment. Communities where racial and economic discrimination have historically prevented these families from living. So the Mount Laurel doctrine is that um, affordable housing has to be in every community. And uh, 
I didn't know that's where I was headed. I drove over and met these folks, and they talked about their after-school programs, and they talked about the success rate that they've been having. They gave me their newsletter, and uh, uh, I met Michael, who's been there for a year or two, and I said, we want to figure out how can we partner with you and come alongside what you're doing. And he said, that'd be great. I said, what can we do? And he went, I don't know. And I loved it because that's my, always my answer. Is I, I don't know. I'm really looking forward to what we're going to do with Ethel Lawrence and with the kids and the families who were there just a mile down the road. Most of you are going to drive past it on your way out. It'll be on your left-hand side. And as you drive by, throw out a prayer about our partnership with them. It's a way for us to engage in our culture because the church is seen as uninspiring, unattractive, and irrelevant to a world that's out there. But yet I find this to be an exciting and engaging and inspiring place. How can we communicate that with the world outside? So today's Donut Day. It's also Connection Sunday. And so if you are here and you are not connected. In other words, we don't have you participating in some kind of way that you can serve. We're going to attack you. No, that's not true at all. Uh, Kelly's going to go, uh, so we have Krispy Kreme Donut Day. In the back, we're going to have donuts on a whole bunch of different tables, and each of those tables is represented by a different ministry. Uh, if you are looking for a way to get connected, this is a great way for you to talk to some folks, find out how you can do that. If you already are, this is a way for you to just have a donut and chat with some people here in the room, and uh, we're just excited. We have tables in the back for lobby, kids ministry, uh, setup teams, and small groups, and we just think those are all really great ways for you to get connected. So let me pray for us. I want you to stand with me, and we'll pray together, and then I'm going to send us out to eat donuts and uh, lots and lots of donuts. It's all-you-can-eat donut Sunday. So God, thanks for these men and women in this room. I thank you, God, for the way that you're working in and through us in this community of faith here in Mount Laurel and in Voorhees. God, I pray that you would uh, continue to work in and through us. God, that we would be a people of faith in a world that is losing faith. That, God, we would find ways to have spiritual conversations, that we would become a good spiritual friend to people who desperately need to hear about the great love that God has for them. God, that we would not be drawn towards tribes, that, God, we would be drawn instead towards uh, finding a way to observe culture, but, God, also be drawn towards a way to demonstrate love, gentleness, servant. And, God, that we would be people who would lead culture and lead in our world. God, that we would innovate, that we would look for different ways to connect a world desperate to know of God's love. And God, we thank you for all these things, and we thank you for this time that we've had, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.